When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who, when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. All that we studied in 3rd Nephi leads up to its culmination in 4th Nephi, but also its complete collapse by the end of that short book. 4th Nephi deserves the kind of introduction that Charles Dickens gave to A Tale of Two Cities. It is the best of times and the worst of times, all in the same book. If you remember how we started our lesson from 3rd Nephi 27 by giving us the very tail end of chapter 26, as the Nephite society is becoming Zion, qualifying under that description from Moses 7, one heart, one mind, dwelling in righteousness, no poor among them. You see the same thing as 4th Nephi begins. Jesus' ministry has come to an end. He has departed, leaving the church in the capable hands of the 12 disciples, the nine and the three all together. And then notice how 4th Nephi begins. It came to pass that the 30 and 4th year passed away, and also the 30 and 5th. The disciples of Jesus had formed a church of Christ in all the lands round about. As many as did come unto them and did truly repent of their sins were baptized in the name of Jesus, and they did also receive the Holy Ghost. In verse 2 and 3, you get a sense of their qualifications as a Zion people. The people were all converted unto the Lord upon all the face of the land, both Nephites and Lamanites. There were no contentions and disputations among them. Doesn't that sound like the Lord called his people Zion because they were of one heart and one mind? Neither their feelings nor their thoughts were pulling them away from one another. One heart and one mind. No disputation, no contention. The next phrase, and every man did deal justly one with another. Doesn't that sound like, and they dwelt in righteousness? And then verse 3, and they had all things common among them. Therefore, they were not rich and poor, bond and free, but they were all made free and partakers of the heavenly gift. Perfect parallel to the last qualification of Zion in the city of Enoch, that there were no poor among them. I love how 4th Nephi describes that as being possible. They were all partakers of the heavenly gift. We sometimes worry that living the law of consecration would bring everyone down to the same lowest possible level. But we forget the fact that God joins in the consecration as well. He is providing the heavenly gift. It is a highest common denominator, not a lowest common denominator, because he who possesses all things is willing to contribute. The moment we are willing not to take any more of what he's offering than anyone else, neither rich nor poor, an equality here. Among this incredible Zion people, notice what the disciples are doing. Verse 5, there were great and marvelous works wrought by the disciples of Jesus. 
They healed the sick, raised the dead, caused the lame to walk, the blind to receive their sight, the deaf to hear. All manner of miracles did they work among the children of men. And in nothing did they work miracles, save it were in the name of Jesus. They're doing things in his name because they are his kinds of things that they're doing. Remember what Jesus did in 3 Nephi 17. This exact kind of ministry. They are continuing it as promised. More time passes in verse 6. In verse 7, the Lord prospers them exceedingly, insomuch that they did build cities again where there had been cities burned, like Zarahemla is mentioned in verse 8. On the other hand, though, verse 9, other cities, many cities which had been sunk, waters coming up in the stead thereof, therefore these cities could not be renewed. Now, I think that's key to see the difference between what happens in verse 7 from what happens in verse 9. You see, remember back in 3 Nephi 8, there was all kinds of destruction. Zarahemla caught fire. Was it Moroni that was sunk into the depths of the sea and Moroni that was buried under a mountain or vice versa? The point that I think needs to be made here from 4 Nephi is that in this age of rebuilding, of repentance, of renewal, some cities that were destroyed had no problem in being rebuilt because the site where they were located was still there. But other places, I mean, if the city itself has fallen into the sea, what are you going to do to rebuild? It's gone. If there's now a mountain standing where a city once did, you can't rebuild there. Now, it's important to see the difference between those two, since both types apply to our lives. You see, when we've made mistakes, when we've committed sins, when we have destroyed parts of us or of others, how do we rebuild? What does restitution look like depending on the sin that's been committed? How do I make wrongs right again? And I think part of the problem is that often we think it all has to be verse 7 and we don't leave any room at all for verse 9 kinds of realities. I remember having a conversation with a friend back in college 20 plus years ago. And this friend was really struggling because of some of the mistakes that they'd made and missed opportunities and feeling like, I just want to go back and redo things. And it was this chapter that came to mind. And for the first time in my understanding of the Book of Mormon, I saw the difference between verse 7 and verse 9, that sometimes repentance allows us to rebuild in the same exact location as if nothing had ever happened in that point of our lives. But there are other times, not that the sin remains. Please do not misunderstand me here. The sin is completely gone, but the opportunity may not be able to be remade. You understand what I'm trying to say here? All sins can be forgiven, but not all opportunities can be restored. For example, Picture someone who missed the chance to serve a mission in their youth. They were inactive or unworthy or whatever the case might be. And time passed and the time for mission passed. And then they repented and returned. I have had students and friends that have beat themselves up over those missed opportunities. Even after a full, complete, beautiful repentance, they keep saying, but this is where the city was supposed to be and it's not. And I've got to spend the rest of my life trying to, I don't know, dredge up earth so I can rebuild the city in the spot where it stood. And I love the principle in verse 9 that don't look back. If the site still stands and you can rebuild in the exact location, excellent, go for it. But in other places where the earth itself is no longer present, 
don't beat yourself up and hold yourself hostage to that sight of earth for the rest of your lives. Move forward and build elsewhere. It reminds me of a conversation I had more recently with a student of mine who was beating himself up with his patriarchal blessing, which he received as a teenager, talking about things like missions and so on that are typically a part of the life of discipleship. And yet he had left that life. He had wandered off the path for quite a while. And by the time he returned to the path, the opportunity for a mission had been lost. And he looked at his patriarchal blessing and just felt like he was condemned by it. And I reminded him that it's called a patriarchal blessing, not a patriarchal curse. And that from where he was, from a spot of earth that existed when he was a teenager, the most direct path to God included those kinds of experiences and opportunities. But he was in a different spot now, a different place of earth. And that old spot no longer existed. I said to him, if you were getting GPS directions on how to get to Salt Lake and you happened to be in San Francisco when you started, it would have said go east on I-80. But if you're in Chicago now and you're still chained to those old directions, do not go east from Chicago. You'll never get to Salt Lake. You can still have the same destination and the same incredible experiences once you're there. But the direction has changed because your location has. The city that was burned to the ground, you can rebuild exactly as it was before. But the city that's fallen into the sea, come inland. Build a new city in a different spot. It can be just as glorious as the city that sunk. It just doesn't have to be in the same location. Watching this student of mine come fully back to the gospel has been such a joy for me. He's incredible. And I have no doubt as to the glory of the cities that he will yet build throughout his life. It doesn't have to be the 19-year-old mission city. It can be a city built out of 35-year-old service or a 70-year-old senior mission, whatever it might be. Build. Move forward. Don't hold yourself hostage and chain yourself down to a spot of earth where a sin was committed and an opportunity was missed when the sin no longer exists and the opportunity doesn't either. It's okay. I'm a visual learner, so please forgive me for this, but I've sometimes envisioned in my mind a bird's eye view of the straight and narrow path down below. And you're looking down and watching someone try to navigate that path. And yet, invariably, we wander, we stray, sometimes far, sometimes near, but we go off of it. And what does repentance look like? I think sometimes we think, okay, I veered off and I went this far, now how do I get back on the path? I have to retrace my steps and go to the exact same location along the path where I veered off. But that doesn't honor the reality of the passage of time. Imagine if we were having this bird's eye view and we were watching the earth kind of rotate below us. So we can watch this person walking, but they look stationary as the path itself moves past them. Almost this moving sidewalk of sorts. And as they wander off, the path, time, continues to pass. And there's no way to go back in time to that spot where we veered off. So what do we do? We just return to the path as quickly as we can. We 
continue our journey and return to the covenant path, as President Nelson repeatedly has said. But here's the problem. Pause it, pause it for a second so it's, it's not still running. And from above, what does this path look like? We have veered off and now we've returned. But there's this big chunk of time where we were off the path. And think about all the opportunities that we missed, the experiences we could have had, the sins that we committed instead. Well, how does repentance come into that? I've sometimes pictured if the Lord were to take the journey, the kind of the line, the dotted line, like Indiana Jones, of where we were journeying and then came back, whenever we repent, he takes that whole thing and he rotates it 90 degrees. So what looked like a deviation from the path and then a return to it, again, this is hard and I don't have good graphics for this, but imagine if you rotate it down by 90 degrees, so now it's just below. So from above, it doesn't look like you wandered off the path at all. It's just you went down below the path and then climbed back up to it. Now, the beauty of repentance is though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow, right? Or as Ezekiel says, your former sins won't even be mentioned to you again. So from above, anyone looking down will see an undeviating course of righteousness right along the center of that straight and narrow path. You never went off outside the lines and were judged by that without any deviations. We have been fully forgiven. Does that mean we've had every righteous experience that an opportunity that's had along a covenant path? No, because for a time we lived beneath our privileges. Now, again, please do not misunderstand me here. I have horror stories of, of old lessons being taught of somebody nailing a, a nail into a board and that's sin. And then repentance is taking the hammer and pulling it out and see the sin is gone, but there's still a hole. And that's false doctrine. There's no hole. It's as if the sin were never committed. So please don't think that I'm, that I'm trying to, to teach that false doctrine again. I'm not. I'm just trying to visually make sense of the fact that sins can be forgiven even when opportunities are not always restored. And to me, rotating our deviant paths so that they end up going underneath the straight and narrow, and yet from above, it looks like we've never deviated from it, to me, helps kind of paint a picture of sinless, flawless, forgiven, I should say, life of discipleship with some missed opportunities when we happen to be living beneath our privilege. We will not be condemned by those. God will yet give us other experiences, other opportunities. There is other geography where you can build cities. I really pray the Holy Ghost is making better sense of this to you than I'm probably doing right now. I just see a principle in 4th Nephi chapter 1 verse 7 and 9 that is essential for us to understand. When we've sinned like we all have and when we repent like I pray we all do, if you can rebuild in the exact location, then do so. But in those times where you cannot, where you cannot relive a missed opportunity, do not hold yourself hostage to it. Move forward. Build elsewhere. There can be a new Jerusalem, 
anytime there is no possible way of rebuilding an old one. I testify that that is true. Don't beat yourself up with your patriarchal blessing. Don't allow missed opportunities from your past trick you into thinking that there will be missed opportunities in your future of the ultimate kind. Just move forward and build elsewhere. That's what they do in verse 10. It came to pass that the people of Nephi did wax strong. They multiplied exceedingly fast. They became an exceedingly fair and delightsome people. And they were married and given in marriage. They were blessed according to the multitude of the promises which the Lord had made unto them. Remember his ministry began at a temple. I wonder what kind of marriages he's describing there. But life goes on. And you can be a part of that life, that righteous life of fair and delightsome, of multiplying, waxing strong, marrying, giving in marriage, just moving forward in life. There is always a path back to the straight and narrow. And they don't all require a retracing of the steps. It's simply a return. Beeline, straight back to that path as quickly as you can. Let the atonement rotate things where it never looks like you left it at all. What the Lord is asking from us, after all, is a different kind of life. Verse 12 suggests that. They did not walk anymore after the performances and ordinances of the law of Moses. That had all been fulfilled, right? They did walk after the commandments which they had received from their Lord and their God. A new set of marching orders, but from the same commander. We saw that back in chapter 15. They continued in fasting and prayer. They continued in meeting together oft, both to pray and to hear the word of the Lord. Beautiful combination. That's what church is for, right? To come together, to go out to discharge, but to come back to recharge. To pray, which is speaking to heaven, and then to hear the word of the Lord, which is heaven speaking to us. Two-way communication described there. And with that, no wonder 13 is the result. It came to pass that there was no contention among all the people in all the land, but there were mighty miracles wrought among the disciples of Jesus. Now, by the time verse 14 comes and goes, a hundred years have passed. The original nine disciples have passed away. Other disciples have been ordained in their stead. This church has to keep going after all. Verse 15, one of the most beautiful descriptions of this Zion people. There was no contention in the land because of the love of God, which did dwell in the hearts of the people. And with the love of God filling their hearts in 15, no wonder there's no room for the kinds of things listed in 16. No room for envyings or strifes or tumults or whoredoms. No room for lyings or murders or lasciviousness. Love is the antidote to all of those things. Remember, we talked about that at the beginning of chapter 27 this week, that Zion is the antidote to the great temptations of the adversary. Love is crowding out all those lesser things. As a result, end of verse 16, there could not be a happier people among all the people who had been created by the hand of God. It was the original Nephi that once spoke of living after the manner of happiness. Well, here, that manner has reached its climax. There could be no happier people. The love of God filled their hearts and translated into the love of man along with it. You see that in 17. No robbers, no murderers, no Lamanites. In fact, no manner of ites. They were in one, the children of Christ, heirs to the kingdom of God. 
Can you imagine not having ites? Remember we saw that back at the beginning of 3rd Nephi, as society was beginning to collapse before the destruction of the wicked preceding the coming of Christ? And it wasn't even Nephites and Lamanites anymore. It was all these tribes and this tribalism where they, they didn't get along. They hated one another. They divided. Well, this is the complete reversal of that. No tribalism. No differentiation or distinction. One, remember Zion, one heart, one mind. It's happening here because they recognize their ultimate identity. We're children of Christ. We're heirs of the kingdom of God. Now, heirs is an interesting word because you want to talk about an opportunity for disunity, then talk about being heirs of a single inheritance. That's often where children, siblings that used to get along just fine, now mom and dad are gone and we're starting to fight over the inheritance. But when everyone can be a partaker of the heavenly gift, like we already saw in this chapter, when the Father's kingdom, what he's trying to convey is all that he has and it's limitless, then there's nothing to fight over because there is an infinite amount for everyone. There's no shortage of God's love to fight over. There's no limit to his kingdom. So as we are heirs of the kingdom of God, as we see each other as fellow siblings, children of God, children of Christ, covenant makers, covenant keepers, there's no division there. I do a lot of interfaith work. And when I get groups together and try to kind of facilitate conversations between them so they come to know one another as people and compare beliefs and so on, I've often used Google Earth as an analogy. Because with Google Earth, you can zoom in and zoom out. And most people have done that. And when you do, you start seeing something. You watch borders appear and disappear based on what level of distance you are. You get close to something, you can start seeing kind of city boundaries or things. Zoom out, and nobody cares about the difference between cities. Maybe they'll show county lines. Zoom out again, and the county lines disappear. You see state lines. Zoom out again. You don't see state lines. You see international borders. Keep zooming, and even those disappear as you see the outlines of continents. You see, if we were to zoom in on any group, you'd see division within them. Different kinds of Latter-day Saints, for example. Are you more conservative or more liberal? Are you a lifelong member or a convert? Are you a return missionary or not? The division. And yet zoom out, we're all Latter-day Saints. You really see this in Protestantism, for example, where there's so many different denominations, but zoom out and we're all Protestants together. Often what ends up happening to forces zoom out is the emergence of a new other. Have a Catholic walk into the room, and now all of a sudden, all the Protestants who used to be divided denominationally are all Protestants. But then have a Jew or a Muslim come in, and now all of a sudden the Protestants and the Catholics get along just beautifully because we're all Christians together. But then have an atheist come in, and now the Christians and the Jews and the Muslims will all come together because we're people of faith as opposed to someone who's not. Again, every time you zoom out and get a bigger picture, previous dividing lines disappear. But do you know the final zoom out, the final click of that button when all borders disappear is when you begin to see one another as fellow children of God and heirs of his kingdom. Joseph Smith talked about getting past the narrow contracted notions of men and seeing that God has paternal regard and has made ample provision for all of his children to come home. No more ites. Oh, I dream of that day.
it will be millennial. And that's exactly what this mini-millennium following the ministry of Christ is giving a preview of. With that in mind, verse 18 becomes a beautiful understatement. How blessed were they? Exclamation point. You get a sense of this? How blessed are these people? For the Lord did bless them in all their doings. Yea, even they were blessed and prospered. 110 years had passed. First generation had got no contention in all the land. But that's where it ends. We only get 18 verses to describe this mini-millennium until things start falling apart. And it's the rest of 4th Nephi that you see the downfall of Nephite civilization. More time is spent on the worst of times than what we saw about the best of times. I'll talk more about that in a second. But watch the downfall. In verse 20, more time had passed. There was still peace in the land. Oh, save it were. Just a, a tiny exception to the rule starting to deviate. Save it were a small part of the people who had revolted from the church. Some rebellion here. They had taken upon them the name of Lamanites. Therefore, there began to be Lamanites again in the land. Or in other words, ites. There was division, distinction, a loss of unity. And if you are not one, the Lord warns us in the Doctrine and Covenants, then you are not mine. Notice, by the way, that the Lamanites here, it was, had everything to do with choice and had nothing to do with lineage. Remember, they had become fully one, a completely integrated society. Now this group that revolts from the church, they're just choosing who's the patron saint. What's the title, the name that we usually give to people who have rebelled against God? Well, we're going to call ourselves Lamanites because we're choosing to do what the original layman had done, to try to separate himself from the family. Well, division in verse 20 is followed in 23 by something that ought to get us a little nervous. As the people continue to multiply and spread across the face of the land, they become exceedingly rich because of their prosperity in Christ. Now, the phrase in Christ gives me some reassurance, but any time I see the word prosperity in the Book of Mormon, I brace myself because I know the pride cycle and that seemingly irresistible pull that prosperity has to bring us in the direction of pride. Sure enough, verse 24, there began to be among them those who were lifted up in pride, such as the wearing of costly apparel and all manner of fine pearls and the fine things of the world. Are we starting to see the collapse of this Zion society based on the temptations that Satan always uses upon the people of God? We saw pride, which is part and parcel with disunity. Remember Zion, one heart, one mind, and pride will destroy that. Now they're wearing costly apparel, the fine things of the world, worldliness and materialism. That's the third temptation of Christ. And it destroys that fourth element of Zion society, no poor among them. See, the one almost unavoidably bleeds into the other. Verse 25, from that time forth, they did have their goods and their substance no more common among them. So now officially that element of Zion is over. As a result, 26, they began to be divided into classes and they began to build up churches unto themselves to get gain and began to deny the true church of Christ. Class distinction. 
as a result of this selfish disunity. Now they're no longer of one heart and one mind. It can no longer be said that there is no poor among them. There's distinction here. What about that other? That's the third element that's listed in, in Moses 7.18. They dwelt in righteousness. Well, that's going by the wayside as well. See, in verse 27, there were many churches in the land, yea, there were many churches which professed to know the Christ, and yet they did deny the more parts of his gospel, insomuch they did receive all manner of wickedness, and did administer that which was sacred unto him to whom it had been forbidden because of unworthiness. We're going to see that idea of wickedness and physical appetite and lust of the flesh increase through this chapter. But by now you've seen all four elements of Zion take a, a disabling hit. Now, specifically in 27, it's interesting to notice they're still calling themselves churches. They haven't yet completely abandoned that. In fact, they're still claiming to know Christ. They haven't abandoned that part either. But they are denying the more parts of his gospel. Now, which part would that be? Remember in chapter 27, we saw the gospel at its simplest was doing the will of God. Now, they no longer seem to care about the will of God. They just want the title of Christian church. There, I guess, it still seems to be some respectability or reputation that goes along with that. But to deny the need to do God's will. Now, I don't know all the specifics yet based on the criteria of the true gospel of Jesus Christ, as explained back in 3527. This is the gospel that the Father raised me up on the cross so I, he could raise all men unto him. I don't know if they're denying that part. I would suggest that they're not. Because again, they're claiming Christ. Oh, he did it. He did it all. He was lifted up. And all of us will be lifted up as well. Starting to remind you of Nehor. This cheap grace, this easy universalism where everybody makes it in. Because notice what 27 says at the end. They receive all manner of wickedness. And they administer that which was sacred even to those that should have been forbidden because of unworthiness. Remember, Jesus does that, tries to strike that balance during his ministry among the Nephites with all of those buts and neverthelesses. Remember we talked about that? That you need to be open to everyone. Let them all come. Nevertheless, make sure you guard the sanctity of the sacrament. But nevertheless, make sure that people know that they can come and be welcome and be a part of things. He's trying to prove the contraries of love and law, truth and tolerance. Well, now guess what they've done? They've eliminated half of that paradox, half of that balance. Who cares about law? Let's just be all love. Who cares about truth? Let's go full in on tolerance alone. All are welcome, including all manner of wickedness, not just people who have committed wickedness, but even the manner of wickedness itself is totally fine. Who are we to judge? That, and as far as administering sacred things to the unworthy, we would never consider or call anyone unworthy. You see, this careful balance that Jesus was trying to help his church maintain had now gone in an easy one direction. Remember, proving contraries is all about striking the balance. And what's interesting is the pendulum tends to swing from one extreme to the other, not just correcting, but overcorrecting. And I get a sense that this has happened here. Remember, Goldilocks zone is in the middle where it's not too hot and not too cold. Well, in the too hot side of things, remember earlier all the disputation that we saw over righteous things? It's the role of the law of Moses. Or how are we supposed to be baptized? Or what do we name the church? It's like it has to be done right. They erred on the side of truth and law. They didn't want to mess up anything. 
It was all first great commandment. At the expense of the second, they were fighting with one another. Disputation, contention. And the Lord says, that cannot be. And so they correct. But here, after a few hundred years, they've overcorrected. And whereas their ancestors that were too hot, now this group is too cold. We've gone from all law without love to all love without law. All truth and no tolerance to all tolerance and no truth. We've gone from too strict to too lenient, from exclusivism to relativism. And neither one of those two extremes is where we need to be. I think it's fascinating and sadly very, very applicable that there are groups, perhaps even among us, that profess to know Christ but end up denying the more parts of his gospel, especially our part of it, which includes repentance and covenant making and staying on the covenant path, living worthy of the sacrament and of the companionship of the Holy Ghost that it assures us of. With that in mind, verse 28 starts to make sense. This church did multiply exceedingly because of iniquity. Well, of course, it's going to grow the fastest because it doesn't call anything iniquitous. You can do whatever you want. Put it on Christ's tab. It's all been covered. You just, you be you, come as you are and leave as you were, and it doesn't matter at all. No hard sayings here. No wonder the power of Satan is getting hold upon their hearts. Now, if that's one step removed, then verse 29 suggests another step removed. Again, there was another church which denied the Christ and they did persecute the true church of Christ because of their humility and their belief in Christ. They did despise them because of the many miracles which were wrought among them. Remember earlier we saw these three possibilities, God versus man versus Satan. Their works will follow them. Which will it be? Well, I think you see all three types of churches here. The church of Christ with all of its humility, all of its faith and repentance and covenant making and covenant keeping, the miracles that were performed through the power of Christ and in his name. Next level down, you have see churches of men where they're professing to know Christ. They haven't denied him, but they deny certain parts of it. And it's more man-made understanding because it's easier on the ears. There's nothing to feel bad about here. This worldly relativism and universalism. Then verse 29 is the third level where this would be more of the church of the devil, straight out denying Christ and persecuting those that belong to his church. In verse 30, that group starts exercising its own authority. Remember, they can't stand the disciples of Christ because of the miracles that they can perform. It's like Nephi, son of Helaman, at the beginning of 3 Nephi, where even the disbelievers hated him because they couldn't remain disbelievers. They wouldn't become disciples. They wouldn't follow him, but they couldn't deny what they knew. He had more power than they did. They could not disbelieve his words. Powerful phrases. Well, in verse 30, these angry anti-disciples, these angry anti-Christs, exercise power and authority over the disciples of Jesus who did tarry with them. They cast them into prison. By the power of the word of God, the prisons were rent in twain. They went forth doing many mighty miracles among them. But in spite of that, 31, people did still harden their hearts and sought to kill them even as the Jews at Jerusalem sought to kill Jesus according to his word. 32, cast into furnaces of fire, but no harm. 33, cast into the den of wild beasts, but played with them like a child would play with a lamb. Again, this is what makes me think that Mormon's little in interruption that he gives back at the end of 3 Nephi, 
is speaking of subsequent generations and what the, the kind of opposition and persecution that the, that the three Nephites faced after that initial generation of whom none were lost. Fourth Nephi seems to be the description of what was happening in real time. The interruption back in third Nephi 28 seems to be retrospective. Verse 34, nevertheless, the people did harden their hearts. They were led by many priests and false prophets to build up many churches, to do all manner of iniquity. And they did smite upon the people of Jesus, but the people of Jesus did not smite again. They'd already been told to turn the other cheek, and they were living that lesson well. Their attackers, meanwhile, did dwindle in unbelief and wickedness from year to year, until by verse 35 there was a great division among the people. Now this seems to be a turning point, this great division. We saw some hints of that before, the reemergence of ites earlier. But with this great division, there really are going to be what they consider Nephites versus Lamanites again. Sadly, it's almost like we've rebooted. Usually you reboot when something's gone wrong and you're trying to make it right. Well, we had it going right in 4th Nephi. Now we've rebooted and almost started the whole thing over again. When it talks about them trying to kill the, the prophets just like they had killed Jesus, well, we could also say just like they had tried to kill Lehi. We're starting all over again with what could have been one solid family and a great division between the two, Nephites and Lamanites. You see it in 36. There arose a people who were called the Nephites, and they were true believers in Christ. And then notice this interesting detail. Among them, there were those who were called by the Lamanites, Jacobites and Josephites and Zoramites. Now, I'd never noticed this before, but you have these true believers in Christ, that are now being called Nephites, but they're also being called Jacobites, Josephites, and Zoramites. And who's calling them that? The Lamanites are. We talked about this last time with all of this, this brand purity and, and taking names or affixing labels and, and what do you call yourself versus what do other people call you? Well, here, it seems like the Nephites, well, what, what are called Nephites, aren't even calling themselves anything. We're, we're, we're Christians. We've taken upon ourselves the name of Christ, and that's all that matters to us. But then you have their enemies who've chosen to be Lamanites, saying, no, no, if we're Lamanites, that makes all you Nephites. But actually, I got a great idea. We've already created a great division between us and you. But one of the best ways to attack an enemy is to create internal divisions on their side. If we can get you guys fighting each other, that saves us the trouble of having to fight you altogether. So let's call some of you Nephites, but call others of you Jacobites and Josephites and Zoramites. We have no idea, it's not explained at all here, as far as what constitutes the differences between them. But I find it fascinating, again, I've never noticed this before, that it's the enemies describing them in all these subdivisions. I have nothing to base those differences upon. But they were coming up with perhaps arbitrary lines of division in hopes that they couldn't be one, so they couldn't be gods. Verse 37 then, Therefore the true believers in Christ and the true worshipers of Christ, among whom were the three disciples of Jesus who should tarry, they were called Nephites and Jacobites and Josephites and Zoramites, again, by their enemies, trying to subdivide. 38, They who rejected the gospel were called Lamanites and Lemuelites and Ishmaelites, they're dividing among themselves as well. It's the flip side of what the Doctrine and Covenant says. If you are not one, you are not mine. Well, here's an example of, well, and if you're not mine, you're never going to end up staying one. And they couldn't. 
And this group, unlike the group that was mentioned back in verse 34, that dwindled in unbelief and wickedness, well, this group isn't dwindling. They're running headlong towards it. They did not dwindle in unbelief, but they did willfully rebel against the gospel of Christ. And they did teach their children that they should not believe, even as their fathers from the beginning did dwindle. And it was because of the wickedness and abomination of their fathers, even as it was in the beginning, and they were taught to hate the children of God, even as the Lamanites were taught to hate the children of Nephi from the beginning. See how it keeps going back to the beginning? We really are starting this thing over again and doing it in the wrong way. Not just dwindling, but rebelling. Not just denying truth, but teaching falsehood to our children. Not just failing to lead them in love, but teaching them to hate. This is an active wickedness, an intentional iniquity. And by verse 40, the wicked outnumber the righteous. The majority has become evil. The more wicked part of the people did wax strong and became exceedingly more numerous than were the people of God. And what hope do you have when the situation turns to that? They're still building churches in verse 41, but they're building them unto themselves. They're adorning them with all manner of precious things. I've said this in previous videos, you can't live without some kind of ism. In our day, most of them are no longer called churches, but if that's your organizing principle, then it's your church, it's your religion, it's your faith, it's your ism. And that faith will lead to a change of behavior, to fall into lines with whatever object you place there. You'll commit to it and immerse yourself in it. You'll look for confirmation that you chose wisely. It's all happening here. Verse 42, it gets worse still. The wicked part of the people began again to build up the secret oaths and combinations of Gadianton. Man, that guy just won't die. Every time his people are eradicated and those secret oaths and combinations are buried deep, they somehow work their way to the surface again. The adversary never completely gives up. Verse 43, the people who were called the people of Nephi began to be proud in their hearts. Here's more pride cycle. Because of their exceeding riches, and they became vain like unto their brethren, the Lamanites. You see, we saw that start back in verse 23 and 24. But there were people, true disciples, that resisted and rejected that pull. But give it time. And this minority of the righteous keeps getting smaller and smaller until with the exception of a few disciples, they're mentioned in verse 44, sorrowing for the sins of the world. Again, that's the sorrow that's inescapable. But having seen the people of Nephi allow pride to enter their hearts and worldliness and materialism follow in its wake. Without a righteous minority, now there's nothing to stop the acceleration of wickedness in the land. Verse 46, the robbers of Gadianton did spread over all the face of the land. There were none that were righteous, save it were the disciples of Jesus. And with that being the case, no wonder God decided to close up shop. The spirit ceaseth to strive with man eventually, Mormon will say. Eventually, in a battle, one side or the other will yield. We will either yield to the enticings of the Holy Spirit or he will cease to strive with us. We fight him long enough and pretty soon he'll stop fighting. 
one or the other will yield. And so what happens by the end, the plates have been passed from father to son to father to son, from Nephi, that disciple we met when Jesus descended, to his son Nephi, to his son Amos, to his son Amos, and now to Amos's brother Amaron. But by verse 48 and 49, we've reached the end of the line. 320 years had passed away. And Amaron, being constrained by the Holy Ghost, glad to hear there's still somebody worthy of his promptings, did hide up the records which were sacred. Yea, even all the sacred records which had been handed down from generation to generation, which were sacred, even until the 320th year from the coming of Christ. That could have been the end of it all, 320 AD. It's not, and we'll see why next week. But this chapter ends that Amaron did hide them up unto the Lord. There was no one else that he could hide them up unto. You realize this is the first time in the last 900 years that a prophet of God has not had another prophet of God to hand the plates to. I mean, yes, it got a little dicey in the book of Omni. Remember that lesson from way back in March or April? The, the low point of the Book of Mormon up to that point, as far as where the plates were concerned. But at least they were getting passed along, even when they kind of mis started misunderstanding what the purpose of the plates was. Well, at this point, you have this man, Amaron, and there's no one to give them to. I don't completely understand what's happening here. If Amaron doesn't have a son to give them to, or his son isn't worthy, the fact that Amaron received them from his brother Amos, does Amos not have a son or is his son not worthy? Again, if they're in a society that has completely collapsed, that is crumbling around them. I was blown away by the talk that Elder Christofferson just gave in General Conference about what is a sustainable society. Zion lasted 18 verses in 4th Nephi. And then slowly, gradually, and then picking up speed, it all fell apart. It is hauntingly relevant, alarmingly applicable. Parents teaching their children to hate, that kind of influence among your own children. Again, maybe that's what's happening where Amos and his brother Amaron have no one to pass the plates down to. It's going to make Mormon all the more incredible next week when we get to meet him. But as this book ends, Amaron hides them up unto the Lord, that they might come again unto the remnant of the house of Jacob, according to the prophecies and the promises of the Lord. And thus is the end of the record of Amaron. And if it weren't for Mormon, who, like I said, we'll meet and fall in love with next week, the Book of Mormon really could have ended right then, with Amaron burying the plates instead of Moroni with Amaron not having anyone to hand them off to instead of Moroni, with Amaron praying that someday, somehow, these records would come forth unto the remnant of the house of Jacob, just like God had promised, that that would be Amaron's prayer instead of Moroni's. Would we have had the angel Amaron instead of the angel Moroni appear to Joseph Smith? Perhaps. But he finds a diamond in the rough, in a 10-year-old named Mormon. Come back next week so that we can learn of him. Before we conclude, though, I just want to give a very brief synopsis of the downfall of Nephite civilization as described in 4th Nephi. 
Because if you start in verse 20 and follow it through to verse 49, you can see step by step. It's almost like time-lapse photography when a, when a flower is blooming, but in this case, the flower is withering and dying. And rather than do it with specifics like we did just now, reading verse by verse, I want to speak in general terms of what takes place in each of these verses. And like I said, hauntingly, alarmingly, you can see this happening to modern society itself. In verse 20, we begin with division. By 24, there is pride. 24 continues downward into materialism. In 25, it becomes selfish individualism. In 26, there begin to be class distinctions. And in 26, also vain ambition. 27 introduces relativism and permissiveness, even in matters of religion. In 29, that grows into religious persecution. By verse 34, there is a loss of faith and of righteousness. It's now disbelief and iniquity. By 35, a polarization of believers against unbelievers, disbelievers. In 36, divisions within the church. 38, rebellion against righteousness. 39, children taught to disbelieve and to hate. 40, the wicked outnumbering the righteous. 42, secret combinations appearing. 43, even the righteous become prideful and vain. 45, the righteous are swallowed up by the wicked until hardly any of them remain. So that 46, secret combinations now have nothing standing in their way and they control society to the point that by 48 and 49, God has withdrawn his word and his prophets. Does it feel like we just read Edward Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire? Does it feel like we just reread End of Helaman and beginning of Third Nephi as Nephite society collapses prior to the coming of Christ? This could describe the northern kingdom of Israel before their scattering by Assyria, or the southern kingdom of Judah before their destruction and captivity by Babylon. It can describe the society you and I are a part of as the clock keeps ticking closer and closer to the coming of Christ. Remember, the Book of Mormon is the scale model of the last days. And just like 3 Nephi 8 is like Armageddon, the destruction of the wicked, and 3 Nephi 11 is like the second coming of Christ, well, 4 Nephi is our mini-millennium. But what happens at the end of it? Satan is loosed for a little season before it all ends. And what we'll see in Mormon and Moroni is that loosing of the adversary and the end of it all. And the book comes to a close. Again, through it all, how do we slow and stop this downward descent? We build Zion. We become of one heart and one mind. We dwell in righteousness. We make sure there is no poor among us. We lay hold upon our faith in the covenants of God and in the gospel of Christ. We do the will of the Father. We help him keep his promises. We usher in the millennium and prepare the world for it. Which again begs the question, why so much time on the downfall of society in 4th Nephi and so little time on when things were finally the way they should be? Why only 18 verses on this mini-millennium? I don't presume to know all the reasons Mormon gave us so little. 
and spent instead so much time on the negative. Rest assured that he did see our day and acted accordingly. But it does remind me of an experience I had years ago when I read the book In His Steps. This is an old book written by a Protestant minister, I think early 20th century. It's where the phrase, what would Jesus do, comes from. And when I read it, I didn't know if it was fiction or nonfiction. It was about some Midwestern town where the people really decided to ask that question, what would Jesus do, and then to do it. And the book describes all the things that happened in that town to make things different. It was incredible. I mean, seriously, I was just turning pages. And the further I got watching the changes that took place in this town, people making hard decisions to be true disciples, observing their covenants by sacrifice, as we would say. Seriously, I just remember this feeling of hope, like, please let this be nonfiction. Please tell me that somebody was able to pull this off. And I don't think it was till the very end when I started looking around kind of on other things about the book instead of just in the book, I realized that it's fiction that it's a novel. And at first, I was devastated until I realized, wait, if I wanted it to be fact instead of fiction, if I wanted that city to be real, then what am I doing to make it happen? The author gave us a scenario that was fictional in hopes that we would produce a scenario that was fact that we are to create that city, that city of Enoch, that city of Zion. We are supposed to prepare the earth for this full-fledged millennium, not just a mini one of 18 verses. So rather than read about it, we get just a glimpse of how good it was. No happier time, no happier people. Then do it. Make it happen. Build it yourself. And if building it on the societal level seems daunting, then start where all the real work happens anyway, at home. George Q. Cannon, member of the First Presidency under Brigham Young, put it this way, and this statement has tantalized me ever since I first read it. President Cannon says, by the saints refusing to be led by the influences of Satan and not yielding to his seductive temptations, Remember, it's those things that spell the end, the demise of Zion, right? But by the saints refusing to yield to those, Satan is virtually bound so far as they are concerned. And when the head of the family can attain unto this power and persuade his wife and family to do likewise, the power of Satan will be bound in that habitation. And then get this, and the millennium will have commenced in that household. Can you imagine that? And if all should take this course, man and the earth would soon be prepared for the coming of Jesus and the ushering in of the full millennial glory and the complete binding of Satan, all of which glory they would already have a foretaste. You see why that statement would be so moving to me? Can you imagine starting the millennium early? Embedding ourselves in the first 18 verses of 4th Nephi? Creating that, carving out that space at home where the adversary is bound as far as the four walls of our homes are concerned. That he is not welcome there. That the Spirit of the Lord reigns. Because within that family, within that home, there is faith and repentance and covenant making and covenant keeping and power and influence of the Holy Ghost. 
The gospel is being lived there in its purity and power. That's the promise of 4th Nephi. And the warning of 4th Nephi in the way that it ends. Can you imagine Christ returning to the earth? Being here for the second coming? Ushering in the full-fledged millennium. Satan bound. Children growing up without sin unto salvation. Hearts filled with love. No contention, no disputation, no ites among us. No happier people in the world's history. Jesus Christ ruling and reigning among us. And imagine children, your children, stepping into that millennial reign, looking around at that binding of Satan and that glorious happiness and feeling sincerely inside themselves. This doesn't feel that different. In fact, it reminds me of home. My friends, wherever you might be, I pray that your life can be a preview of life during the millennium, that Jesus can be a part of your life now as he will be then, that the feelings you have then of safety, of security, under the hen's wings, encircled in the arms of safety, the feelings of love, of oneness, of belonging, of knowing as you are known, that those feelings then may be feelings that you have enjoyed for a long, long time.